Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. We certainly have plenty of volume of healthcare activity in the United States, at least based on our healthcare expenditure that exceeds other countries around the world by orders of multiples. But our metrics and experiences do not align the spending with good experiences or outcomes. And by many measures, the country does not get good marks for healthcare our citizens are getting. We've discussed many of the causes of this on this show that contribute to this, but the fee-for-service model that our healthcare system is based on creates incentives for care that do not always align with the best interests of the patient. Like many other industries, healthcare has its share of bad actors, and unfortunately, with large sums of money involved, it's forced the imposition of a range of checks and barriers to the delivery of care. Sadly, these barriers impact everyone, not just the minority who are trying to skirt the regulations and fail to seek choices that are in the best interests of patients, but all the good players and actors in our system. The consequence of this is a whole range of administrative overhead requirements that must be fulfilled before care can be delivered and payment received. Prior auth or prior authorization probably brings shudders to many listeners not just the doctors and clinicians, but to patients, and even to the hospitals and health systems. If it has not impacted you or your family, it will more than likely at some point in the future. You visit your doctor, he orders care, only to find that the care, or more accurately the payment for that care, is being denied. So begins multiple rounds of communications and submission of documents and supporting evidence as the various parties involved negotiate the elements of that care and agree if it's appropriate or not. Meanwhile, you and your family wait. One of the more successful transitions to better, more economical care has been the so-called move from volume to value. In this case, the value here is the better quality care at lower cost. There are many variants of this form of capitated care where one party takes on the responsibility and embedded in this responsibility is the risk and cost for all the care of an individual. Medicare Advantage is one of the larger programs based on these principles, but it suffers from similar challenges to efficiency that we see in the fee-for-service programs. Join me on Healthcare Upside Down Show as I talk with Alina Chekai. She's the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at Cohere Health Previously, Alina served as a senior advisor at CMS. Hi, Alina. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. Really, really glad to be here. 
So Medicare Advantage, uh, I think, uh, I want to say an emerging concept in healthcare, although there's a part of me coming from another country looks at this and says, hmm, we've done this before. But let's, you know, consider this as a new-ish uh, concept. Uh, I want to describe it as capitated care. Um, is it a solution that is working? What's been your experience? Yeah, I, I think overall um, the the concept of Medicare Advantage is um, you know a program in United States healthcare that that's certainly working. Um, you know, there's um, increased numbers of patients uh, covered by MA plans every year. Um, every year, there's new plans being introduced uh, to the market for for patients and their their families to choose from. Um, so you know that part of me loves the idea of there being more options for patients, more competition generally in the system. Um, You know, it also allows for a bit more of a flexible program than what the traditional Medicare program can offer, um, kind of with the different supplemental benefits and other options to choose from. Um, But like with any program, whether it's a public sector program or, you know, a large private sector program, um, there, there's a coordination failure in some pieces of this program, right? Every actor, uh, whether you're a health plan or a physician or, or a patient, um, every actor is acting in their own best interest. Um, so at times, you know, there can be opportunities definitely to find areas to improve, um, areas to eliminate waste, to eliminate, um, you know, issues and denials like we've seen. Um, in recent reports. Um, but overall, I, I think definitely these plans, these programs um, are working. Um, you know, these MA plans are also the, the organizations in our, in our country that are um, leading a lot of the forward-thinking work around value-based care, right? They're championing new payment models like bundled payments. Um, you know, they're looking at different capitated programs different risk arrangements. Um, they're also holding the physicians in their own networks um, to, you know, increased uh, levels of um, scrutiny when it comes to cost, quality, things like that. Um, but of course, you know, like anything in healthcare, there's there's always ways to improve. So it, it's worth just diving into the details of Medicare Advantage. I think most people have a, a reasonable understanding that at, I believe, 65, you roll into access to the Medicare program, which is essentially government-supplied health care that is, um, I, I'll be careful picking my terms, I'm going to say single-payer, which in this case is the government for those uh, services, but there's a limit to what you can get through that Medicare program. Medicare Advantage is essentially a layer on top that you can select if you happen to have. I don't think it's in all markets. I'm not sure. Um, but you can select it. And if you select it, that gives you access to perhaps a slightly different program. Can you just clarify the details between that and, and what the benefits are? That's, that's absolutely right, Nick. So you have the traditional Medicare fee-for-service program. And then, as you suggested, MA is um, kind of a, one kind of step further 
um, in, in some situations in terms of uh, the coverage that that patient uh, might have. Um, you know, MA plans are run by private health insurance companies, um, and they're effectively taking that responsibility on from uh, CMS, from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They're taking on that responsibility to care for that elderly 65-plus population um, on behalf of this public program. Um, and so, you know, every every year during open enrollment, um, a patient and, and their family, they have the opportunity to review the options. Um, and again, it's um, often, you know, based on their geography, what's offered to them. Um, but it, it really gives people that um, additional opportunity to choose whether, you know, they need something extra, whether they have... Um, uh, you know, difficult chronic conditions or whether they are, you know, in a, in a stage of their life where they're in and out of the hospital, things like that, um, you know, they have the opportunity to really take into account what they need and make those decisions um, accordingly. So value-based care driven by uh, essentially a single payer, in this case, the, the U.S. government with uh, coordination with external parties who are managing and running that and indeed running it as a profit center. Let's be clear. I mean, this is not a, an altruistic activity on their part. They believe that they can make money doing this because they can essentially deliver better care at lower cost uh, in its simplest form. And because it's value-based care, they bundle everything or bundle many things up into that. So uh, overall, sounds like a good idea, I think, generally. Um, you know, people tend to resist this and say, well, no, that's going to limit my network. I can't see my dot, you know number of sort of pushbacks. But ultimately, if you want to get the best value for money, that's one of the pathways to it. But it's not been smooth selling. We've not seen the adoption. I mean, it's certainly increased, but not the adoption that you would expect. And we see challenges within those programs. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, the, the transition from a fee-for-service system to a value-based System. Also, I like to phrase it as, you know, the shift from volume to value. That's not going to happen overnight. Um, you know, there's the health insurance companies, which are a key piece of this puzzle. Um, but there's also physicians and, you know, the ways that they are trained um, to, to offer care to patients. There's these uh, giant technology systems like um, electronic medical records and, you know, other revenue cycle management type programs that are built in a very fee-for-service, very transactional mindset. Um, there's public policy, right? Um, you know, the Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, the CMMI uh, Innovation Center, for the last, gosh, over 10 years or so, they've been putting out a number of models and opportunities for health insurance companies, for provider groups, for states to participate in these new value-based um, payment programs. Um, but there's still so much uh, learning and testing out there, as well as these big infrastructure changes that need to happen to really smooth the road um, for, for that shift from volume to value. I think we're making great progress. I think 
you know, both in the public sector and the private sector, there really is a ton of innovation taking place. Um, you know, perhaps it it is that, you know, the, the common American, the, the average person isn't seeing that. Um, so often, you know, when we ourselves are getting healthcare, uh, we're experiencing it so personally, right? We're not we're not seeing um, that, you know, we're we're saving money by choosing one network versus the other, or we're not, you know, we're not feeling the difference. Um, but I do feel confident that over time, um, especially as some of these infrastructure changes start to adopt more of a, a value-based mindset, uh, we, we will get there with time. So like all other uh, healthcare uh, systems, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, and I mean healthcare systems certainly in the United States, I don't know about other countries, we, we have a whole process for essentially uh, authorizing care um, what what many would call the prior auth or prior authorization activity, I think it's become certainly for many of my clinician colleagues, and I, I would say for patients as well, something of a um, nightmare in in some instances where you feel uh, that this is the appropriate course of action. Uh, this should be the the right choice for care. But you end up in what is or can be a black hole of denials or challenges that precludes you from getting that care. Now, on the one hand, that can be a good thing because we don't want to deliver care that's inappropriate. I mean, that's, you know, and and there's a lot of overuse or excess use. But when it comes to getting it right, we're not doing that as such, or at least that's my understanding. What do you think? I, I think you're absolutely right. And and as you noted about your, your clinician colleagues, um, you know, prior authorization is a huge burden, a huge headache for uh, physicians and their staff. Um, I know there was a recent AMA survey um, that said around 94% of physicians report delays in patient care as a result of prior authorization. And actually, 82% of them uh, reported that prior authorization can lead to a treatment abandonment altogether. Um, and so, but it's not, it's not just, um, you know, physicians who see prior authorization as a burden. Uh, it's also the health plans, right? Many of them are uh, putting um, a lot of money, um, you know, in their administrative processes. A lot of them have call centers. A lot of them have... Um, nurses who are reviewing cases, doing those peer-to-peers. But most importantly, prior authorization is um, a headache and a challenge for the patients, uh, the patients and their caregivers. Um, and, you know, when a patient is going through a, a medical um, event or needing care, the last thing that they want to be thinking about is, is my care going to be approved? Is my care going to get paid? by my health insurance company. Um, so there is definitely a, a big, big opportunity here to improve prior authorization. Um, my, my company, Cohere, is, is focused on just that. Um, our customers are health plans that are looking to improve prior authorization. Um, and for a health plan, that means partnering in a very different way with the physicians in your network 
as well as the patients who are receiving care um, as a member of your plan, really changing the way prior authorization works. Um, and so I, I think, you know, this is a this is a legacy program, a legacy policy that's been around for years when it comes to healthcare, and it's certainly one that is uh, ripe for innovation and and ripe for major change. But I, I mean, when you you cite those statistics, I mean, ninety four percent—that's almost everybody being uh, cited as you know some form of denial. That's a, a an appalling statistic, unless you believe that at least ninety four percent of care shouldn't have been delivered. I mean, that's how I interpret it as a clinician. And you know, there's certainly a a, a group of individuals that would suggest that that denial process is all part of the economics here, because as you rightly stated at the outset, everybody's working to their own agenda. So if if that's the case, how do we fix this? I mean, I, I, I'm not seeing a pathway through this. Yeah, so, and just to clarify that 94%, that's not referring to um, denials, it's, it's referring to delays, but, you know, as you put it, when you're a patient, they feel pretty similar, right? Hours, days, um, time matters when you're when you're needing right. to get important health care. Um, but I, I think there's a number of ways that we can improve this, um, you know, program, this process of prior authorization. And it's really around um, leveraging technology, leveraging clinical intelligence, um, you know, having transparency around the criteria uh, for a prior authorization, you know, what, what requires prior authorization, what does not, um, what are the clinical criteria uh, to being approved for offering uh, and rendering clinical care services. Um, and so that's something we at Cohere are really focused on. Um, effectively, we automate the prior authorization process um, by leveraging clinical intelligence, leveraging this automatic um, intelligence, um, and our end user is the, the physician. So we're able to serve as almost that bridge between um, two uh, stakeholders in this system, right? The health plan and the provider. We're able to bring the information that both parties need to make this process smooth. Um, and we're able to use technology to automate it. Um, so when a physician's back office staff is using our Cohere platform, uh, they'll go in noting the patient's uh, clinical state, right? So let's say a patient is going in for a knee, uh, knee surgery, right? They'll note um, if the patient has, um, you know, if they've gone to physical therapy, if they have attempted conservative pain management, epidural injections, things like that. Um, they will note the pain that the patient is enduring, all kinds of important clinical uh, criteria. And then we match that up against both the payers' policies around um, prior authorization. And then we also match it up against best-in-class evidence-based clinical criteria. So guidelines, suggestions from actual physicians in the field right, like the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the American College of Cardiology, um, so that we're ensuring that not only are we leveraging 
what the health plan deemed appropriate to pay for care, but we're also marrying that with what the physician leaders in that specialty or subspecialty deem important. Um, and so our brilliant engineers and um, you know folks designing our, our product have been able to match all of these things that mean so much to the plans, that mean so much to the physicians, and build it into a program that effectively automates a prior authorization decision. Um, we see about 96% of the providers who are um, in a health plan customer's network, so in a health plan, uh, with a health plan that we are partnered with, 96% of their networked providers um, are using our portal. Um, and so we see um, about an 86% auto determination rate. So 86% of the time, um, the providers using our platform, at the end of going into the software, at the end of going into the, the program, they come away knowing, hey, my patient can be scheduled for that surgery, or hey, my patient um, you know, can, can go home and get ready and, and they know what's, what's next in their care path. Because we're able to take this big picture, entire episode of care, and also thinking about what's most important to the patient, the plan, and the physician, and creating a technology around that um, will certainly, certainly improve this process. So do you see in, in the future a, a point in time where prior auth and, and that process disappears? Is it always going to be around? You know, I think that is the ultimate goal. Um, I think that is the ultimate goal that, um, you know, I'm certainly working toward in, in my day-to-day -day at Cohere. Um, I would love for, you know, our country's healthcare system to be in a state where we don't need to so tightly um, regulate or police, um, you know, these, these types of programs. I hope that one day we get to uh, a state that is totally value-based and where the incentives uh, in the infrastructure are already aligned. Um, but until then, I think we can continue to use these um, programs and policies like prior authorization uh, to transform them, to innovate them, and to really build that new infrastructure for the healthcare delivery system of tomorrow. So it would appear that prior auth is here to stay. I think automation is part of the uh, process for essentially easing the burden on those that feel that burden, perhaps the integration of the uh, elements of data and you know maybe even the automation of that. Um, we have to really uh, work towards removing that and making sure that you know we get to a more instantaneous uh, decision because as you described, that process of time or delay is probably one of the bigger factors if, you know, it's not a full denial, but, you know, a, a delay, essentially. Um, there is hope and there is maybe some potential future in this that says we won't need it. But until such time, uh, automation remains uh, our friend. Alina, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much, Nick. Really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. So perhaps the idea of prior authorization could be seen in a more positive light if we can find ways of relieving the burden to the patient, doctor, and associated groups. 
Relieving the pressure of documentation requirements, many of which still remain paper-based, would be a great start. We see high rates of denials based on missing clinical criteria, missing documentation, and perceived discrepancies from the required clinical criteria. In most cases, the information exists and are resolved, but the process delays care and adds to the overall cost of care and increases the stress on everyone involved. Getting all the data that is available and satisfies the conditions set out for the approval of care becomes the main priority and one that technology and automation is well suited to. Your better pill to swallow is to rethink your approach to prior authorization and the process of approving care by harnessing the available technology and tools to smooth and automate the process. Take a deep dive into the data sources and spend the time integrating the information to be fully accessible so that it can be provided first time to satisfy the authorization requirements. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown, and join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone. Thank you.